Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 32. With me here this time is game designer and writer of Extra Credits, James Portnow. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's great to have you on. I guess to start is actually the history of Extra Credits, because originally it wasn't your project. No, I feel like I I love this story. So, all right, I'll, I'll do, give it again. I actually was sitting at Activision, working at my desk, and this day I get, I remember it perfectly, I was at lunch, and I get this email from a kid at Savannah College of Art and Design asking me how to pronounce my name because he had used one of the articles I'd written, I think for Edge, maybe for Gamma Sutra, as the basis for a video he did for his sort of final project, right? And, um, and so, of course, I say, yeah, sure, uh, here's my name, shoot it when you're done, I would love to see it. And about a week later, I get it back, and I'm like, that's it. All this time, I've been trying to find a way to talk to consumers, to the people who actually buy our games, about design. Because at the time, we had only been sort of talking in this really tight circle of designers. We'd talk about design to designers, but we wouldn't talk about the medium to the people who actually who actually loved it, right? And so that is sort of the origin of extra credits. And for anybody out there wondering about why the voice is pitched up, it's because Dan was at Savannah College of Art and Design, right? He was an animation student. And as an animation student, they make you hit your mark on everything. He had, the video was supposed to be exactly 10 minutes long. And like any college student, uh, of course the project got done 4 a.m. the day it was due. And it was like something like 10, 15 seconds over. And he was like, oh, I have to redo this whole thing. And he started to work on it. And he was like, nope, I'm just going to speed it up <laughs> and done, right? And, of course, speeding up, the, uh, speeding up the whole thing, pitch shifted the dialogue. Which you have adjusted over the years. We've slowly been dialing it back. We actually tried it once at his normal sort of voice timber. And it totally doesn't work, right? That animated character needs to have an animated voice. Doesn't need to be as high as it originally was, though. I actually went back and watched those early three or four videos <laughs> that he put on his own thing. It's, it, it's not just the voice, like everything different is noticeable. Except in the first one, he did acknowledge that the format was inspired by Yahtzee Croshaw's Zero Punctuation review series. Yes, um, if I remember right, when he was doing this thing, he saw Yahtzee and wanted to do sort of an animated but not really animated, I guess what you'd call PowerPoint animation discussion of games. And especially at the time, because there was so little investigation into questions that dug a little bit deeper in games, Yahtzee was actually one of the few critics that wasn't just always slapping a review score on there. And that was something that he wanted to do too. And so, yeah, it was inspired, I believe, by Yahtzee and sort of that whole simplistic but animated style. For listeners, I should probably put a timestamp on this. <laughs> this is all happening in 2008. Yes. Just to show how very different the world and the internet of video game criticism was back then. Oh, my God. I can't believe it's been like seven years. Wow. I try not to think about yeah, it. Yeah, no, <laughs> I was trying not to. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and you've actually had like a turbulent like career, well, not career, but uh, like moving of the show 
has like a turbulent history because it started as a small YouTube essay series. Then it got picked up by The Escapist as a weekly series before you changed hosting to Penny Arcade. And eventually they shut all that down. So you had to become your own thing on YouTube. Right. And I mean, for anybody who's a creator out there in any medium, just don't let it get you down. Right. This sort of stuff happens to everybody all the time. And I mean, it's been rough. Every time we've had to change a venue, we've had to sort of reestablish an audience. You lose people. People get really confused. We still get emails asking about when the new episodes are coming up on Penny Arcade. But you make it through and you grow. And I mean, there will be a million stumbling blocks along the way for anything. I mean, everything I've ever done, whether it's a game, piece of art, a something like extra credits, right? So it's one of those where you just move forward. Although the imp- like the independent infrastructure is somewhat different now in that it exists in the first place. You don't need to be on an established site like Escapist or Penny Arcade to actually make something and have it work. Well, and that's what's fantastic, actually. It's what I love about the games industry as well. When I first started in this industry, I mean, you needed to have $40 million, a team of 60 people, and we're building for the PS2, right? And that was it. There was no other way to make games. And now today I love having watched over the last decade-ish the industry evolve and especially the opportunity for creators to evolve and find places on platforms that just didn't even exist when when I started. You say 60 people and $40 million. That sounds like a dream project for enough for a number of studios even nowadays. Yeah. I mean, back in the PS2 days, that was not the dream project. That was, that was I would say... A the game. high end. Right, that was a AAA, but that was most of what was getting out there, right? Like, there was... Well, what I mean, I meant that for, like, the big studios, in that, oh, my God, we would kill for something that small scale. Oh, yeah, today? Today, oh, my God, to be able to work on an indie game with only 60 people? Uh, yeah. No, it's insane to me how AAA has grown in cost and sort of management overhead to the point where we've had to collapse the AAA, right? I don't think something like Katamari would happen today because you couldn't do it, right? Not within the structures we have now established. Too big for indie, but too small for AAA. Right. And uh, that's, and I mean, it, it might happen in the indie space because we're now starting to get that, I guess people are calling it triple I, although my jaw sort of locks at that phrase. That's not, uh, that is not a f- one I've ever heard before. I've, I've always heard single A. There we go. Um, I, I have, I have started to hear about the, the triple I, the indie with a larger budget hitting that space that we are clearly missing right now in the market between triple A and indie, which I think is, is important. I think that space is we've lost something by forcing all of the AA publishers out of the market because they're not small enough to have the lean, low-budget projects of an indie, not big enough to ever compete with the $100 million to $500 million projects that the AAA is costing nowadays. And not to get too far off the subject, but uh, back to the videos. Like I said, I rewatched that first video on video game and storytelling. <laughs> Such a narrow project, <laughs> narrow yeah. subject. You don't need more here. than a ten-minute video about that. 
Well, thankfully, he does explain at the very beginning, this is like the summation presentation of the actual thesis, mm -hmm. which softens, softens the blow. And it's like, you realize, good God, this is what we thought in 2008? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm sure if Dan and you went back and watched that episode, you'd have your hand in your hands going, what the hell were, <laughs> was I thinking? Because it's really high-end, really basic, and you realize after so many, like, failures and so many successes you realize how much even a lot of the information is just wrong sure um i mean <laughs> i remember that first episode was taken from a number of of articles including mine looking back like like any art we evolve a great deal and we've seen a lot of change in the last eight years unfortunately at the highest end again especially in the area of narrative, which has been something that's been occupying my mind a bit of late because of both some consulting I've been doing and the episodes I'm currently writing. We haven't made as much progress as I actually would have thought we would have by this point eight years ago. You mean we've made more or less? Less. Uh, in the tr only in the, in the AAA room. I think that a lot of the experiments that we're seeing in the independent space in the experimental space, are doing a heck of a lot more with narrative than we ever saw. But when you look at the big AAA narrative games, some of them are either stagnant or in some cases a step backwards from what we were doing in that space, I mean, even through the 2000s, right? Well, yeah, the 2000s was like an oddity where you had you almost had like somewhat big-budget auteurs just slipping through with Deus Ex, System Shock 2, Pins of Persia. It's almost, like, unrecognizable now. Right. And it's really unfortunate because it's also, in some ways, killing some of the genres that I think many people, and myself included, love. And I don't mean killing, but if we look at, like, a lot of the big-budget RPGs that have come out in the last, say four years, we're just, we're not delivering the level of narrative because we're, we're afraid of it. We're not delivering the level of narrative that these genres were built around. And because these genres established themselves as a storytelling medium, that failure is, I think, starting to really impact both the sales of the genre and thus the rate at which these projects are getting greenlit. On a slightly better note... <laughs> Previously, we did a year worth of episodes interviewing people who wrote books of criticism, so I ran out of those, so now I'm moving on to the next medium, in this case is video. What is the process of actually creating an episode of Extra Credits? <laughs> it, it, I know these are these are dull questions that you've answered a hundred times before, but... Oh, no, I'm, I'm just laughing because you used the word process, and that's not necessarily something I would apply. <laughs> Scattershot... Uh, buckshot of a blunderbuss then? Right, exactly. No, There is actually a process once it gets past me. But So the first step is I write some stuff. Usually I'm so busy with my consulting firm and a lot of political activity I do and all this other stuff that I generally am writing about things that are sort of occupying me in my like work or other life outside of extra credits. And poor Dan he'll get nothing for like three weeks from me and then he'll get like eight episodes all just in a pile. And then the process is I send them off to him 
we do a quick edit pass back and forth to make sure it fits his voice and that that there aren't things that feel really logically inconsistent because you know when you write like anything you're so proximal to it i believe i believe in user tests and so having dan as that first pass that editing voice who can come back and say oh this was clearly a train of thought in your head it is clearly derailed on this page is fantastic from there dan will sit down with it he'll do the uh, sort of VO process, and we've gotten a lot more refined. He does, I mean, as you said, you can hear the audio quality has improved. We've done a lot more to streamline the audio side. He'll pass it off to the artists. The art process is, is just long and involved. And usually they'll get it back in time for us to just exactly put it up. So rarely do we actually get a chance for Dan and I to see the art except for in its very preliminary stages before it goes live. But while at times that causes confusion and while it's something I thought about wanting to do more on, I also like abandoning the creative control there because I see the episodes one way and it's great to see them. Like we've got my voice, we've got Dan's voice, and then we've got another artist's interpretation and understanding of them. And through those three pieces, I feel like we actually make episodes that are more universally approachable just because we have more perspectives involved. But that's the general process for an extra credits episode. I feel like I should strike this next question. How long does it take? (laughs) Well, so (laughs) the truth is, if you're excluding me, it takes about three weeks. Mine is totally random. Sometimes I'll be on the plane back from a consulting gig and my mind will just be racing and I'll like slam out two episodes. Sometimes I'll just sit there with my head in my hands for two straight weeks. Although that probably has nothing to do with extra credits, just something I do. Um, but, uh, but no, sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll try playing things and I'll try it and I won't see anything that really feels like a burning question to me. But then I just go out, right? I go out into the world. I talk to people who play. I go to conferences. I do my consulting. And there's always something, right? For eight years, there's always been something. Do you feel that the the original format is constraining at all? Not, I mean, so far, not really. There's a couple other things. Like, you've seen some of the Design Club episodes we've done where when we have the time, we there's some stuff that you have to show gameplay in order to be able to elucidate. And so where it's constraining is that it lets us talk about generally applicable things rather than highly detailed specifics. But I actually like that constraint because I feel like the hardest thing is to stare at a blank piece of paper, right? The hardest thing with a game is to build a game without constraints. Constraints actually help. And the constraint of this format is actually that we have to talk about things that are universally applicable. And I like that because one of the things I've found is a problem with people trying to explain design is that they'll often explain one very specific facet of design or tell you how to build levels in an FPS, right? And there are whole books that came to game books about game design that about a third of the book is just about something like that. And it's really forced me not to do that, which is something that I appreciate. And what do you feel is the scope of the extra credit videos as in like how narrow or how broad do you approach a concept or however much time and energy you have to actually apply to the scope? 
my my instances like earlier videos or not always but you could like narrow down to very minute points i'm thinking especially of like uh the the one you did about uh call of juarez mm-hmm. and it's a tr- and it's atrocious design in certain aspects or one or the ones the pair of episodes you did about uh spec ops the line and how how its general design level design trajectory explained the main theme about that game though so we actually do those periodically you'll find there's about two of those a year we did them with the walking dead we just recently talked a little bit about the witcher and film noir or not even film noir right uh really hard-boiled detective novels and so there's a little bit where we get to do that the problem with dealing with any specific game is of course who knows how much of your audience has played it and how much you want to spoil things, how much, especially in a game, it requires a lot of times that you play them to understand what's being delivered. And the question is, can I find a game where that's not really true? Like the Call of Juarez episode, we could lay out the fact, I mean, that game genuinely bothered me on a lot of levels. As a designer, I feel like we have a responsibility that that was not living up to, but that can be communicated even if you haven't played the game and spec ops a little bit as well, although less so. Does that, does that broadly answer the question? I don't think I asked the question too well, so I'll say yes. All right. If you want to take another <laughs> swing, we got time. Well, it's more like when you have a topic how far do you go into that topic? Because do you just like broadly touch on it to explain this is a thing in games that most of my audience has probably never heard of or thought about before? Or how far do you go into a topic? Ah, this is actually a really good question. So it depends. Truth is, with extra credit, sometimes I'm talking to designers and the development community, and sometimes I'm talking to the sort of broader consumer audience. And with the broader consumer audience, I focus more on accessibility and understanding sort of these broader concepts that are going on so people can better analyze and better think through and better understand their games, but maybe not have to utilize it to the same level as you would in building a game. Then there are the episodes that are about stuff that bugs me about design and the industry, and those are usually the ones that I also go into much more technical detail about and like we're going to have an episode coming up about throwaway lines and how so much of video game writing is throwaway lines and although it's broad and should be accessible to everyone there's very specific prescriptions in there and some discussion very specific discussion of a game that is meant to talk to the, the discussion of the game isn't meant to talk to the, the design audience, but the very specific descriptions are, hey, this is one perspective on how we could solve this. Here's a detailed approach, a methodology. I may be completely wrong, but here's the thought, right? We should be doing this more. And so when you get these detailed ones, it's usually because I am conversing with the industry as much as I am with, with the consumer audience. In that respect, should you be counted as an expert or or only on certain topics? Because some topics feel more sketchy than others, and it could be that it is outside your specific expertise as a designer. It depends. I mean, if you have any specific examples, I'm happy to talk about them. But basically, a lot of it also depends on 
on the week and how much time I have. Truth is, right, we're all human and mm-hmm. there are only so many hours in the day. And the reason that I can write extra credits is because I, I have worked on a lot of projects as a consultant. I left AAA because I didn't want to spend three years of my life becoming a better Call of Duty designer. I wanted to become a better designer. And so I have a broad level of experience. But on the other hand, I will be the first to admit that extra credits is by no means gospel. It's meant to start a train of thought. And that is as much as I expect from it, right? And I will also be the first to admit that there are people who are so much more of an expert than I am on all of these topics. One of the things you learn as a designer is that you are not, one of the first things you have to come to terms with as a designer is that you are not the expert, right? That you bring in a wide range of experiences and help people tie those experiences together. But any room you walk into, there will be experts on art, on coding, on sound, who just kick you across the floor in any of these areas. And so absolutely, I'm sure there are areas that I've talked about that I have less expertise than I would love to have. I I ask because... A pedestal grants authority and the value of trust inherent in that, and you have garnered a rather large pedestal, but probably not as large as some others or even within the larger culture as well, but it's still very visible. And I, I wonder, because this is like, this can be seen as a lot of people's first exposure to the what's behind the curtain. And for me, I just you just have to weigh harm and good, right? At the end of the day, you try and get out of this life doing a bit more good, right? And that's basically where I'm at with the extra credits episodes. I try and only speak on things that I have had practical experience with in the episodes where I do not have as direct connection. We do periodically call in other people. I've written basically, I guess I've written every episode, but uh, we always call in experts like on the episode on programming, right? I'm not a programmer. I can script fine, but you let me in your memory management and just everyone dies. So we call in people in that. And just like the recent episode, this week's episode, actually, I had someone who is much more familiar with supply chains and how consoles get built and who's done a great deal more research in that area to come in and work with the script on this one. And so I, we try, but we are flawed human beings and I am willing to acknowledge that hopefully, hopefully we are doing a little bit more good. And hopefully in the areas that we are lacking, we are, we are a way to start someone thinking and start someone's curiosity. And it is my hope that they dig deeper than extra credits. It's always been my hope that people dig deeper than extra credits. Because truth is, even in things where I'm an expert, even in the best scripts I've ever written, seven minute video is not enough. Do you see the extra kids videos then as like a 101 education? Oh yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't put it much past that. I would even say it's a it's an introduction, right? More than even your 101 level because there's so much to dive into and there's so much of this that just requires time and study and thought with your games or with making games. But do you, how do you see it as using extra credits as a critical endeavor in those few examples I gave previously? Oh, uh So like with what you guys do, I think that it's really important. And especially, remember, we're starting this way back. We need to move the conversation past reviewing, right? We need also to move the conversation past 
reposting the pressers that game companies send out. We need to actually have a conversation and discussion and realize we can, we can think more about games in the same way that we do about books or television or film. We need to have those style of conversations in order for the games industry to be allowed to make better games. And so we're just trying to do our little part. When there is that interesting coffee shop moment that you can discuss with your friends or, or think through where I get to tie some of my background and some of the things that really strike me in these games as doing more than you might see at first glance and being able to call those out, we try to. Yeah, one of the great things I love from your episodes when you go into depth is the is, is like the dissection of craft mm-hmm. in specific instances. You did this with Hearthstone, and Hearthstone is not a game I particularly enjoy anymore. <laughs> so just on the Hearthstone topic, but, so I actually started my career in CCGs and way, way, way back. And I have always had a fondness for CCGs. So some of the stuff about randomness is a discussion directly facing the industry and the people who are working on this. And that's why it was into into such depth because there's a lot of, I mean, it may seem like a piece of minutia, right? But there's a lot of discussion about how to use randomness and its place in games that are considered strategic. And it's something that we, we argue about a lot. And there is a whole, there are whole philosophies sort of around this, right? Do you use randomness to inspire large moments and save the, and help new players have a satisfying experience? Like, do you use randomness to force players to adapt strategy on the fly rather than have a static strategy? What are you using that for? Has schools of thought. And I know that's a bizarre thing, but that's, and so that was my discussion with the industry through this particular platform on my thoughts through my work on that. And my favorite parts of that is that when you actually start pulling out specific cards and and sort of broadly place it on that little cartoon graph to illustrate where you felt that this card fell on the power curve and how the different interactions worked with these cards. And I found that interesting because dissection of craft isn't something we see a whole lot of, a lot of criticism, even the stuff that's the great criticism that we highlight at Critical Distance is that you often see that you either focus on the artist's side of what the idea and the intent and what they're pushing for, or the experiential side of what is the broad pull from this, either specifically in, in a personalized experience or in a general thesis idea of what this game is about. And somewhere in that, it's like few have, have done it, have actually gone between those two where the craft, where the game intersects with what it's actually doing, with how it's coming out, if you understand what I mean. And I would love to do more on the craft side because I do think there is actually a certain beauty to excellent craftsmanship. And I think it's important because, and this is going to make me sound super old, but I feel like in some ways I have met a number of designers who are unconcerned with their craftsmanship. And it's like the difference between, I mean, a chair you find in Ikea and a chair you see hand wrought in an antique store, right? There is a real noticeable difference and we're losing some of that with this sort of unconcern. But 
there are also lots of designers dedicated to graph. I would like to see more of it. The problem is, and specifically with the Hearthstone example, right? If you look down at the comments on those videos, we did them anyway, even knowing we were going to get this. But about half the comments are, I don't play Hearthstone. I don't get this episode, right? And so we have to balance those two. Huh. I guess if, maybe if you don't understand the basic rules, but I would have thought that you explained it well, the concept that, okay, I don't play this game, but I understand if I don't have an emotional reaction to the specific cards and a personal experience to it, I would still understand the concept. We try, and I'm hoping that, right, commenters are always the most vocal of, of any particular group, and I hope there's a group of people out there who don't play Hearthstone but did follow the episodes enough to be able to apply the general ideas to other games they play. But we do, I mean, whenever we go into specific craft, we do get a lot of that. Although in, don't quote me on a few weeks, because it may not be exactly a few weeks, but we're doing another design club series where I'm going through Baldur's Gate, Durlock's Tower, and going room by room talking about what specific pieces are doing what in each room. I'm sorry, I just really like Baldur's Gate. Well, and you remember <laughs> you remember when they introduced Durlog's Tower? I don't actually, because for as many dozens, I probably triple digit number of hours I played in that, I never got through the whole thing. <sighs> there are huge parts that get because it, it's I enormous. Would just, I no, I made the mis- I, I always make the mistake of choosing thief mage, <laughs> which meant my character died a lot. Yep. <laughs> So if you take another run through, when these come out, watch them. I bet they'll inspire you to go back and at least check out Durlog's Tower because I think that there are examples of, it is one of the finest examples of dungeon design or at least applying the methodology behind dungeon design that I have seen in a game. And a lot of that methodology is applicable whether you're making a 2D pause and play CRPG or if you're making something like Fallout 4. I would also mention that I didn't know that Baldur's Gate had a difficulty slider. (laughs) So I have actually come to enjoy playing Baldur's Gate in ways that are completely bizarre and of obscene difficulty because I love some of the things that they built in because they were thinking through the ramifications of a full D&D system and they were clearly D&D players. But, like, there are some really hard enemies that have flaming swords, right, that are these enchanted magical flaming swords that they, that they rush at you with. And if you just cast a spell magic, they can only punch you. And so you can beat them at, like, level three or four, where you're supposed to be level eight or nine by the time you fight them. And there's all those little little tiny nods to what the player might think to do in any given scenario that I love about Baldur's Gate. Okay, I'm going to feel a little dickish asking this question, <laughs> especially since I saw Dan get it on his, uh, on his, uh, what's that thing called where you ask people questions? Oh, the AMA or whatever? Or his, uh, uh, was, oh, I know uh, what you're talking about, his, like, I don't know exactly forgot, what that's called, but I know the I forgot what the si- I forgot what the site's called, but yeah, it says, what happened to the voice acting episode? So, Dan I and got I... got promised from, like, day one. No, no, this is great. Dan and I disagree on this. So my thing is, and luckily, because I have to write the scripts, I secretly want it to be our last episode. Like, if we ever call it a day because we promised it for so long, I want it to be the very last episode we ever do. 
But Dan? Dan feels like we should actually get out there at some point. And, I mean, I know and I agree, and I know lots of people who want to become voice actors, and I know it is important, but there is a certain, there is a certain, I guess, artistic, irony isn't the right word, I guess, ridiculousness that flows through me that desires it to be the final episode, so we'll see. That is an episode, though, that we're going to call in, again, the couple of times we've looked at doing it, we've brought in voice actors to talk to us about it because I've worked with voice actors. I've never been a voice actor. I have no idea. I mean, there's stuff for them that is well beyond my ken. There's things about audio that I've learned in doing this podcast to realizing, yeah, there. I know my limits. <laughs> I know what's here and what can be done, and I am not and I am capable of exactly what you hear on this podcast. Well, and I mean, on the voice acting side, it's just stuff like every single one of my talk to gives me tips for how you keep your voice intact while doing sort of death and impact noises for two hours straight. Um, <laughs> and it's things like that that while you think about, you wouldn't think that everyone has a tip of the trade for it because it's just that important. And so, I mean, it's, it's always great, though, talking to people who are who know way more about a thing than you do. Yeah, and I remember you were promising, like, to actually get, like, some of the name voice actors and ones we didn't hear to, like, lend their own, I suppose, like, voice to it. And we've Terrible. actually had several times where we've thought about doing this episode, and we've got people, and we, I've got all these clips of famous voice actors doing, like, easy-ish stuff which amuses me immensely, but someday, I mean, there are a lot of episodes, the stack is enormous for things I want to talk about, which is good, because it continuously surprises me that we don't have a run out of episodes, and the voice acting episode is definitely on that stack. I really do. I want to be, I want to be cheeky and put the final episode. Nice bookend. Yeah. Then. I'm actually glad you mentioned the stat because I completely forgot to write it down in my notes. Because you used to reference the stack and even give us a little peek behind the curtain of the stack. Whenever you mentioned a concept while talking about something else, you'd have a little card come up that says future episode. And I believe most of those have actually come out that you la- that you labeled early on. I would say roughly 80%, but some came out like three years after I mentioned them. And I would say if there's... Anything that is, I have a fairly good memory for these things. Like, that's one thing that I I don't actually let a lot of these things slip. But, like, everything in my life, it will be done when it's the right time, right? And so there will be all these episodes. Even now, there's episodes related to a lot of the stuff that will probably show up in three years that I really want to get into the thing that's been great to me is that there's always something in the games industry that's also fresh and urgent to think about. We try to never rush things. We try never to be topical. But when you're talking about game design and ideas within game design, there's stuff that's within this six months important to discuss, right? And a lot of the show also tries to hit those things. And over across, according to your YouTube page, 11 seasons, however you divide that. Arbitrarily. (laughs) 
I think so. We we luckily brought in. If you look at the end of the episode, Soraya now manages our a lot of our content and has been helping us divide all that stuff up. Helped us get out the sort of product line of extra reds, plushies, and things that just went up. And so I actually don't know how we divide them, but I think into roughly equal groups, and we cut off a season at this point, probably when we want to take a week or two break. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I interrupted in the middle of your question. Well, no, I think that, I think that was it. But, yeah, so... How many shows and shows is in quotes here in the, are in the extra credits empire at this point? Because uh, we've been mostly talking about extra credits like original. Well, and classic. funny because extra history is actually bigger now. But our main shows are extra credits and extra history, and I think you'll see anything that has the word extra on it be sort of what we consider the main pillars of extra credits. And then on top of that, we have Design Club, which gets put out very periodically because those are so labor-intensive for us. And Dan has his Remix, X Remix, which we love the Remix community and the people at OC Remix are great and have been awesome to us. And so it's a way for us to highlight them and to show just how great that music is, right? Beyond that, we've just opened EC Plays, which we didn't want to put Let's Play content on the main channel. So we've opened up a separate channel to sort of do weird design-oriented Let's Plays. So Dan's talking about very specific animations and going into the animation of very specific games. I'm talking about some of both Hearthstone and the Destiny. I'm doing a whole series about some of the odd choices, design choices made in Destiny. Uh, and so we're doing stuff like that over there. But that's just going to be a hodgepodge of – that's a place for whatever we feel like talking about that we don't have the time to really formalize into into an extra credits or something of that nature. So I'm going to go with a bunch. We have a bunch of shows. <laughs> and a completed show, James Recommends. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I want to do more stuff on this new Extra Plays channel. I wanted to sort of spin down James Recommends, and I'm really hoping I'm never going to have the time. I know this, and yet I delude myself into telling myself that I will. Sometimes I felt like with the James Recommends stuff, it would be better if I was just playing them and talking about some of the design decisions and why I find them interesting, because in a lot of James Recommends, I didn't get to talk as fully about that, so I'm hoping to do stuff of that nature. Like I was just playing, I think, Thea, The Awakened, and there's some really interesting stuff there to me, but it's also a game that's completely impenetrable unless you spend some time with it, and I'd love to be able to shortcut that process for everyone and talk about why I find some of the design choices interesting. It also should be mentioned that James Recommends was a spin-off of a feature you did in the main show called Games You Might Not Have Tried. Which we're actually getting back to now that James Recommends there will be a Games You Might Not Have Tried for the holiday season. <laughs> and now that I'm not doing James Recommends, I'm like, oh, that was that one. And I immediately have, like, three more I need to put on another Games You Might Not Have Tried. Like, the day after yeah. I, I, I sent that episode to Dan, I was like, oh, my God, there's so many more games. We started a, a second type of podcast, what we called the mini-sodes, 
these the main interviews come out in the middle of the month and the mini shows come out at the end of the month. And it's just me and whoever I can grab <laughs> to list three games that have gotten no criticism. Have you run into anything awesome of late? Of late, no, because I barely played anything, but I've, like, such a backlog of things. Why isn't anyone written about this that I'm able to pull from <laughs> at, the, at the moment? But no, plenty of other people have been able to point out th- weird things, small things, grand things, or recontextualize games I heard of but didn't realize were actually interesting to, from a certain point of view. I'm not going to say that it was influenced by this, but I'm certainly not going to deny that there is a parallel Here's something no one's ever heard of before, and games are just so wide, so expansive. I, I, as difficult it is for me to be a co- as a person who has to do it every single month to find three things no one else has ever heard of before. It, it's just it can be done. There's just so much out there, right? And that I felt like with James recommending, it's like, oh, that's not going to be difficult. Who will never run out of material? Uh, it was really just finding time. Like you, I, so I have this little one room apartment and having to reset up the camera and, like, get everything set up so the audio was even semi-reasonable, which it wasn't most of the time because my camera had the bad sound guard and all that stuff. It was such a pain in the neck. But I really like the ability to highlight some of these games that do slip through the cracks because the developers are really good developers with some really good ideas, but maybe not the level of polish, and more importantly, not the level of marketing and PR that some of the other games have because they didn't find the publisher because as game developers, although I argue that every game developer, especially independent game developers, needs to be aware and needs to wear the hat of sort of the business person, not not in order to make tons of money, but at least to get people who would benefit from seeing their work seeing their work. A lot of these games just fall through the cracks because what the developers are focused on is development, and that's what they love, and that's what they do. And so when it comes time to publish, uh, they they don't put the same level of themselves into it, and no one hears of these great games. I know being a video game criticism site, I really should focus on extra credits, but for this last section, I really want to talk about extra history. Because Let's do it. It, it is one of my favorite favorite shows that you came out with ever since it started. Thank you so much. I appreciate that because uh, we even got calls from people at YouTube when we were talking about doing it, and they were like, well, just to let you know, we're worried that you might, it's a gaming channel, you might destroy the channel by trying to put history on it. We're like, no, you don't understand this audience. And it's been awesome to hear how many people say, I love extra credits, but man, extra history, it's been amazing that you guys are doing that. And I love, that's so great. And the thing is, as much as, because you weave, you manage to pull out the narratives from all the huge amount of data and information. And, oh, thank God, the dates and names version of history is gone from education. (laughs) Well, thankfully, it is gone from my education. Right, exactly. (laughs) I have been doing a lot of work about this at uh, school boards and this sort of thing and universities flying around the United States heckling people about, hey, no, proper nouns and numbers are not history. That's the context, it's the action and the people that's the history. Right. And it's and it's interesting to actually pull it out. I think probably one of your greatest episodes is when you try to explain World War One's beginning and you spend an entire episode on the single assassination and the way you described it, and I don't know if this is how it was in real life, and no one really does. You admit that at the in the final episode of that series. You say it, it turns into a farce. 
the entire incident that caused one of the greatest conflicts the world has ever seen was practically was pre- you could play yakety sax right. to it. I was thinking Benny Hill music, right? <laughs> uh, when I was reading through it, you read it, and in some of these books, it feels really dry. And then you try and organize the events in your mind and think about what really went on when you remove some of that dryness. You're like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is comedy gold. It's like, I don't know if you got to see the Crusades episode, but there's a there's an episode where the line, why let a little blank get in the way of a good crusade, comes up a lot. Because, again, it was just this ridiculous, unbelievable series of, these are the people you got to invade the world, <laughs> like, and they succeeded, right? And then, and then, this was the successful crusade. Wait, what? But to tie it back a little bit to games, extra history sort of originated when the folks at Creative Assembly threw some marketing money at us. They said, "Hey, teach about Rome. We could spend this on some banner ads, but instead, teach about Rome." And it was. Awesome. I thought that was a brilliant idea. We loved it. We had been talking about doing extra history before that. That gave us an impetus. But the important thing is actually when I talk to schools, when I talk to school boards, when I talk to universities, I talk about this a great deal. For the extra history episodes, all I'm doing is using the techniques I learned from building games and applying them to history. We use, I use the interest curve that I use to build any game on creating the narrative and creating the flow for extra history, things like that. And so I think that we've used, we've learned 100 years ago, the best thing a kid had to do outside of school was hit a ball with a stick, and it was hard to get them to do their homework, right? And today you have YouTube and television and games and all this stuff. Our leisure time has become so much more engaging, but our schooling really hasn't. And it's not, you shouldn't be blaming games or distracting kids from school. Instead, we should be taking all those things we've learned about how to engage a human being from games, from film, from modern music, and applying them into how we educate. And for some reason, there's been this barrier there, and we haven't done that. And Extra Prince is sort of, I mean, Extra History is sort of my attempt in my own small way to prove that we can. I think the greatest moment that proved that was when, in that uh, Rome series, when you explain Hannibal finally making its way over the Alps, and you explain what must have been going on through the, the average Roman soldier's mind when the elephants appear out of nowhere. Well, that was one of those moments and, that just struck me when I read about it, right? Like, I was thinking about, because I was trying to put myself in the shoes of these people and imagine myself, especially the common people in these events, and, I mean, and be like fighting dragons, right? The line you went, it must. This is the first and only time in history we have fought literal monsters. And you're and speaking as a gaming channel where you you're always fighting in fantasy RPGs. This is the one time in history where that emotional resonance was real. Yeah, and I love being able just it contextualizes it so well. Well, and one of the things I love to do on sort of the flip side to that is. Beyond history, we've also gotten to teach a little bit of economics, right? Not in a, but when we talked about the South Sea bubble, we got to talk. I showed that to my dad, who is from England, <laughs> and he, he, his eyes kept bulging. <laughs> especially, especially when he learned we still hadn't paid the debt off from those. <laughs> oh man, yeah, no, that that blew, that was one of my favorite. Like when researching. I always, every once in a while you discover little things that are 
tangentially things that aren't in, because 90% of the books you read, 90% of the things in them are identical. But when I stumbled upon that tiny fact, I just, that was probably one of my favorite discoveries in researching extra history. But we also have to discuss like very complicated market manipulations and people were there, people were into it, right? And that I thought was fantastic. We did a whole episode just recently on cholera and the ways in which cholera kills you, which is disgusting and disturbing and terrible. And yet people were willing to learn a little bit about about disease and medicine, right? Um, and so I think that there's this, this myth that, oh, people today don't want to learn or, oh, the Internet isn't a place for for education. It's just it's just lies and cat videos. Um, I think people really do. Actually, I think as human beings, we love learning. I think it's part of inherently sort of who we are, but it needs to be presented in a way that is accessible and positive for us, not in a way that is enforced and drear. And so hopefully, like, it's just been amazing to see people's reaction to extra history. And like, it's renewed my faith in the world. Well, you weren't the only one doing history or even the first. No, not by a lot. I know. It's just when you mentioned the Crusades, the first image that comes to my head is the one from a crash course yeah. where they have the three where they have the three crusaders just hitting themselves on the head with their own maces. Well, the crash course guys are great, right? Like I love yeah. uh, although it's really funny, every time I propose a topic, then like I wanted to do extra economics actually because I think it's important. And I remember like every time I send one to sort of the extra credits crew, it's always yeah, crash course did it. <laughs> you can always you always find a new angle you find a new spin and eventually you'll do the mongols yeah well actually i'm i'm excited for that day because i think there's there's a great story but i like the fact that ours what episodes we do for extra history are actually voted on by viewers and it's been inspiring to me to watch viewers not vote for the things i would love to do the life of caesar right i think that's a fantastic story, really important, defines a lot of Western society even today. But it's also been inspiring to me. That was up there, and people chose small things, things that are usually outside the canon of what we think of as the history you get in high school or whatever. I mean, we've done we've done the South Sea Bubble, we've done Zulus, we've done story of Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump, and that's not been me. That's been chosen by the viewers. So I think that I love I love seeing that I love the level of of inquiry I see out there. I'm actually really grateful to it because it, it and you decide whether I'm talking about extra history or <laughs> video games, but it's just it could have been all about the wars, all about the battles because you you did uh, you did the, you did the Punic Wars and you did and then you did medieval uh, the Sengeku Jedi civil wars mm-hmm. and you did. <laughs> Uh, then he did the, and then he did the Crusades, and it could have very easily just evolved into, okay, here are a num, here's the top ten lists, of the top ten most interesting conflicts, and how, and here are the stories of how they started and how they ended. Okay, that's fascinating. That's that's actually really exciting in in a number of ways. But then you get into the, then you get to do the South Sea Bubble. Then you get to, oh, here's how we learned investigative medicine. Here's how we. 
here's how we didn't learn how to deal with uh, economic bubbles and <laughs> and fraud. <laughs> well, and I we try and do about fifty fifty. We're not quite there, but the I love it because that's actually the ratio that our audience has given us. And the amazing thing to me is. I mean, like anybody else, right, I dig war history. I think it's exciting. There's a lot of, I mean, sometimes it can highlight the most, the extremities of human emotion, right? And so I think there's a lot there. But so often I see history taught as the history of moving from one war to another. They're important. They're turning points. You can't ignore them. You can't do history without them. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that they are not all there is to human history. And so I think it's it's important we find a balance. And I think the other great thing about extra history is the debunking episode. Or I, I don't know if you actually have a term for it. We call it lies. Of... It is named after <laughs> the worst Guns N' Roses album. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can refute that. <laughs> is that you basically, okay, at the very end, he says, okay, here's what we got wrong, and here's what we did for entertainment effect, and most importantly, here's why we got it wrong for one reason or another. And you actually go into explaining, we don't know. Like On the seminal tragedy, he says, like, we know all about this from World War One, and here's the stuff we don't know because no one wrote it down or they contradict each other. Someone lied when they were writing it down or some of it's apocryphal, or in the case of uh, the Sengeku Jedi and Admiral Yi, it's in a different language. And when we started Extra History, I actually insisted that we do those episodes because, to me, I don't want any viewer to just trust us, right? Like, I think we're, again, a great introduction, or at least I hope to be a great introduction to these topics. But I'd love us to be a starting point, and I want people to... One of the lessons I'd love to get across is that no history is just true, right? All history is to learn from. None of it is a – you need multiple perspectives to really understand what went on. And some of the stuff is lost in this history. And I think that's a really important thing to learn and to understand as, as a student of history and as a student of humanity, right? And so I really want to do those episodes so that way people would – not just take this to gospel. And so we would admit to where we are wrong, right? Because I hate to say this, but I've seen, I don't know how to do this without throwing anybody under the bus, but I, I've definitely certainly seen certain shows, especially on television, where things will come up and I'm like, wait a minute, I've studied this a lot. And I go back to my books and go check these things. And I'm like, no. They actually just were, were wrong, and they're just going to barrel ahead and never admit it. And anybody who's learning only from this source got something that was completely inaccurate because someone mistyped something and nobody ever caught it, right? And so it's really important to me that we don't do that. Uh, and so I really wanted to make sure that we had that lies episode in there where we admit, hey, look, we are not the final word on this. We don't want to be the final word on this. We hope we've given you an entry point to something that you learn from and dig into and find beneficial for the rest of your life. But that's what we are, right? But unfortunately, I, I do have to dash. Uh, one last. Oh, sure. Last, one final, yeah, no problem. The final you. question. I always ask this of every interviewer, and they always groan. 
What is your favorite video game of all time? If you have a favorite video game, you haven't played enough games. <laughs> I mean, but. I joke, but I mean, it's like asking me my favorite band, right? If you ask me, it would change day of the week and depending on my mood. And so I don't actually think I have a favorite game because like, there are some games that have affected me emotionally, incredibly powerfully, that will resonate with me forever. There are other games that have gripped me for hours and hours and hours have taken a huge part of my life because I love the play, right? So I don't think we can divvy it up in, or at least I can't. I can't break it down into here's a single game which is more important to me than all the rest. I mean, I can tell you games that I think are great, that I think have meaning to me, that have changed my life or have made me better understand myself. But I cannot tell you my favorite or the best one. That's a weaselly answer. Well, the weird thing is, it's true, right? Like, I mean, I, yeah, I understand I that. I completely understand that I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, this is the best. But if I was, I would be giving you a false answer if I said, this is my favorite game. because, And maybe it's not that I'm weird and I'm a designer, right? I schedule 15 minutes of my day every day to play a game I haven't tried. There are only a few games I go back to. I don't really go back to games that often, even the ones I love, unless I want to learn from them, unless there's something I want to get from them again, because there's just so much out there to experience and to understand. Thank you anyway for coming <laughs> on, James, even if you didn't answer every single question. If you enjoyed the podcast and all our other episodes, please rate us on iTunes and tell us so. We have our Patreon for all our projects here at Critical Distance. I believe Extra Credit has its own Patreon. We do, actually. Extra History has its own Patreon, and we would love to see you there because we want to vote on the next topics for Extra History. Come just join us there. For either Patreon, just Google Patreon Critical Distance or Patreon Extra History and you'll find it. Thank you for coming on again. It's been a really pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. <laughs>